Sean Sewell with the Engagement.com podcast, and today we have quite a treat for you. We are mixing it up, and my colleague Will Rickards is here to host an episode with some superstars here. So um, take it away, Will. Thank you, Sean. I confess, I am massively, massively excited. And when Sean asked me to host this, he said I could invite anyone I wanted to. And um, the three gentlemen that we've asked here are all luminaries and i will use that word really with 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 full intention in what's called the natural movement movement um this is something that's intrigued me for a long time both as someone who wants to maintain longevity i kind of abused my body i'm sure lots of people here have done the same thing we've been hearing stories of that before we started <laughs> up um and and so wanting to know how to keep my body working as long as possible um and also as a professor in a p department and you know back then i was trying to separate the hype and the branding from reality there's a lot in sports and um i have the background of looking to nature to find solutions and quite frankly i struggled sometimes with what i was told was science and if I put that simply, I was often seen as being hokey. And what I love is the three people we've got here are not only comfortable sitting in that space, they are more than happy to stand up and shout from the parapets about it. And that excites me. So basically, welcome Christopher McDougall, welcome Eric Orton, and welcome Stephen Sashen. I'll briefly introduce them and then we'll get going. So Stephen, um, with his wife, Lena, is the founder and he is also the CEO of Zero Shoes. Uh, their tagline is live life feet first, which should be an indicator of what he is about. And the company is still on a mission to bring people, more people into the natural movement um, world. And I can... I can vouch for what they've been doing because I bought a pair of Stevens DIY sandals in about 2007. <laughs> it's too. quite a while ago. Um, it is basically zero is a garage grown company that is expanding at a phenomenal rate. I'm sure Steve will probably tell us a little bit more about that later. Steve's also a master's All-American sprinter, and he's been known to be a stand-up comic and a cognitive psychology researcher. So welcome, Stephen. Um, anything you want to add to that list at all? Uh, I designed the Washington Monument. I was the former lead singer for ZZ Top. Uh, and <laughs> I, I came up with the number three. Those are my... Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I like three. <laughs> <laughs> Eric is a running coach. Um, and not just any running coach, but the one featured in Born to Run. And we'll talk more about that later. I basically knew I would love Eric when I saw an alignment in our teaching coaching philosophies while I was participating in one of his sessions. Ultimately, he sees his work as being to make sure that the coaches feel something. Um, therefore, he generates experiences to ensure this is the case. It is this beautiful blend of manipulation where you become your own coach because you become aware of the sensations you want to experience. And I think that really separates him massively. He's also the author of The Cool Impossible. I would really encourage people to take a look at it. It's an amazing book and it really 
indicates his philosophy beautifully. So welcome, Eric. And uh, again, anything you want to add? Yeah, thank you. I, I like that word hokey that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> I think we're all going to fit really well into that. So uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And in all honesty, Chris does not need much introduction. I'm sure he's a journalist and an author whose books have tended to shake things up um, through artful, and I use that word, well, storytelling. He has created a level of cognitive dissonance, two words I love as a teacher, um, that has led to large-scale adoption of all kinds of random things. If you now have chia seeds instead of wheaty bix for breakfast, you can thank Chris. If you are <laughs> contemplating heart rate when exercising, you can thank Chris. And um, if you're thoughtful about where your foot lands in relation to your body while running, well, you've guessed it. He's a former war, war zone correspondent, editor for Men's Health and Farmer. Chris is best known for writing the bestseller Born to Run, Although, if I had to pick one of his books for a desert island reading, it would be Natural Born Heroes. Yes. Um, you know the drill, Chris. Welcome. Anything you want to add? I do want to add, actually, I'm going to add about Stephen and Eric, because so I spent three hours in the water this morning body surfing, and the waves were kind of low, and I was kind of pre-gaming for this conversation, and I was reflecting a lot on you two guys, and two revelations I had. Number one is... Steve, I don't understand how you can maintain the joyfulness of this conversation when I find it kind of infuriating, you know, like to, to keep telling people like, no, like the coaching, why do you think it's helping? Like, blah, blah. and I get impatient and angry and Steve gets joyful and amused. And the oh. second thing about, it's about Eric though. So Eric, yesterday I was going by a, a, a park and some kids were doing some football drills. And they're doing that karaoke. Yep. And it reminded me, we were at a little clinic and there was an extraordinarily successful, well-regarded coach. He's head of a uh, major urban metropolitan running club. This guy's credentials are off the charts. And he had us do this drill. And I was like, oh, this is really kind of cool. It's like, like sort of ballet jumping. And Eric's like, eh, it's, it's useless. Why are you doing that? Why does it help? Everybody does it because everybody else does it. And I was looking at the karaoke drill and I was thinking, why are kids crisscrossing their feet running across the field? Because it's never something they're going to do. Anyway, so what it, it left me today with this impression of, ha of being associated with two minds who bring both joyfulness and skepticism where I just kind of bring a flamethrower. <laughs> and and let me and let me add something about chris um chris can you just if for people watching can you hold up that cup you're drinking from uh just so everyone can can tell uh yeah there we go and get it closer to your face so chris is actually 30 feet tall <laughs> that's a full-size mug that's right this is a big gulp yes. this is a 32 ounce big gulp <laughs> Well, I, was, I thought you'd make fun of me for being so dainty. I'm here with my little demitas. I just talked about, yeah, I was in the war for three hours. Let me just kind of sit my little macchiato. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. So this is a fantastic and fascinating realm. You know, this concept of natural movement. And it, it's become, a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a conflict with industry. What should be the cheapest thing to do, i.e. go for a run, is in fact a huge market. 
And, and this has shaped how we see it and how we do it. And, I, and I, I pulled out some numbers just to sort of indicate this. The global sportswear or foot, sports footwear market size was valued in 2022 as being 83.51 billion US dollars. It's expected to reach 112.8 billion by 2028. Then I found some numbers from our very own Stephen here, and I think this was from February this year, who stated that natural movement has the potential or the addressable market of $200 billion. It's an awful lot of money, and it really it indicates why the issues that we're going to be talking about exist. But I loved what um, Chris was saying about Stephen's joy. And I am way more inclined to come from that angle than this sort of fiscal angle. Um, and so when I, when I talk to you, and I've talked to all three of you, the thing that's always struck me is that you are all on fire with passion. You all have something that you want to tell the world, and you are going to tell it. And I really want to delve into the why you are so passionate. What are the values that drive you um, on the on your quest? Where does your motivation come from? And what is your purpose? And so that's what I really want to deal with in our time together. And, and I wanted to start before I set you off with a quote from Born to Run. Um, we've been talking, I've been down in Alamosa recently and uh, saw a nice statue of Coach V Hill. And Coach V Hill plays quite a large part in Born to Run. And there was this quote um, from the book, and it really got me thinking. In fact, it got me, me tingling a little bit. And it goes like this. His gut kept telling him there was some kind of connection between the capacity to love and the capacity to love running. Mm. The engineering was certainly the same. Both depended on loosening your grip on your own desires, putting aside what you wanted and appreciating what you've got, being patient and forgiving and undemanding. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that getting better at one could make you better at the other. So, Chris, you pen those words. What, what were you thinking when you started talking about love in a book on running? I'm just drinking that in. I haven't reread Born to Run since it was published. And every once in a while, I'll see a quote or something like that. Someone will read something out loud. And I'm like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> and I'm really kind of like, holy Christmas. You know, like, I feel like I was channeling something external. And I was like the vehicle for it. So that, and I, I really love that. And I think the thing about it is that. When I was writing Born to Run, there were two things going on. Number one was at the beginning of the book, I'm like, do I even have a book? Like, this is really so simple. Like, what do I have to say? Because by the time Eric teaches you running form, it's very simple. You know, we have a five-minute running form exercise we do. 
it, it, you can summarize everything you need to do for proper running form in three sentences. And that's not going to get you to the end of a book. And you can only have so many stories about Jen vomiting in a bathtub and barefoot Ted, you know, bending someone's ear about uh, you know, Japanese monks. But what I think so, I think part of it was this um, this thirst to have something new to say. But the second thing was that as I got into the subject, you know, I I, I was um, understanding it for myself. It was very similar to like what I just described to you about the revelation about Stephen and about Eric is that when you sit back and you contemplate these revelations come to you. And when I was writing Born to Run, they're coming to me in real time. Like at the moment I was understanding that I was then writing it as well. And that's why I kind of don't remember it because it's one of those things. It's like you wake up in the morning and you remember a great idea. If you don't write it down, it's gone. So what I think happened there was I was really trying to understand coach Joe V Hill. I was trying to understand his approach like how can i be the nicest guy in the world and also the most successful and it ultimately connected me to the whole evolutionary biological theory that humans evolved to run and anything that you evolved to do you should be psychologically pre-wired to love it and again you know if hawks didn't like to soar there's gonna be no more hawks they're not gonna bother flying if you told fish, hey, no, you need to have, you know, specially designed scales. Otherwise, you're going to injure your dorsals. They're not going to swim. And so I, I think I was getting at that. I was grasping that connection between romantic love, the sense of, of passion, of joy, along with the uh, adeptness of the bodies to uh, actually be good at this activity. And that's where those two things came together. Fantastic. So, Eric. What, what what's your love of running what 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 sort of makes you put your shoes on and and hit the hit the trails of, of jackson on a i would imagine a fairly daily basis yeah um yeah i think it, it comes back to maybe what coach v hill saw in the taramaras in leadville during that story chris was just um alluding to him born to run where he saw the smile on their face and it's not so much about the smile, but I think about he why he was such a good coach was he had the awareness of how they were feeling. And to me, it's it's how running makes me feel both during, after, and when I think about it. And to me, that's maybe ultimately what love is, is of how we feel, right? Yeah, I like that. And, and um you know, I, I go for my bike rides or, or even running and, and I cannot help but smile, right? There's something about that movement that you sort of hit that cadence where the thoughts start to run freely. If it if it feels comfortable, if, you, if what you're doing feels like it's not hurting, then it becomes joyous, right? And, and, and you're really in that place where like, all my best thoughts come when i'm sort of moving oh yeah without a shadow of that there's and there's loads of literature on that and and the research on that but what blows me away is how not many people smile back you know it's like i am running around the park say and i'm just in that sort of a frenzy where you know i look like a mad person i don't doubt it because i'm so freaking happy 
but most people look miserable and and i don't get that and um hey i'm sure we'll unwrap that a little bit as we go along but i would love to know i sat steven is is basically a sprinter more than a runner correct yeah i i'm a 60 meter indoor 100 meter outdoor guy i don't even take the what do they call it at the end of the track? Turns? Is that the word? I don't because <laughs> I, I don't have a GPS watch, not like a watch. <laughs> so, um, but but it's but nonetheless, even with that, the um I'll never forget there was one sprinter that I was hanging out with who said, What's so wonderful is when you get it right, which basically means your form is on point, it just feels like you're flying because your ground contact time is so short, it's like your feet aren't even really hitting the ground. In fact, I watched this one sprinter, kind of Gil Roberts training. Uh, we were on the track together for a couple of days and he's he was often second to Usain Bolt in the 200 meters. And his, his feet were on the ground for such a short amount of time and he got so much power out of the ground. It looked like he was stepping on a bomb and it was just throwing him forward. He wasn't even touching the ground. It didn't look real. And there's something about even that that's super, super fun. But to the point that both you, know, you and Chris and Eric made, the simplest thing I can say is A, good form feels good bad form feels bad um and you know you're smiling and looking like a mad person that could be why people don't approach you I'm not, <laughs> um it's a definite possibility but also to chris's point about the sort of the evolutionary component of that i always like to remind people this is going to sound crazy sugar doesn't taste good we evolved to like the taste of sugar because it gave us something we needed, aka calories. And then we evolved, we learned how to make things more sugary and give us more calories. Same thing with running. It feels good because it's something that we need for our survival. And we learn to make it feel good because otherwise we wouldn't do it. Now, to be clear, I don't understand why peeing feels so good because I would do it even if it hurt. <laughs> but when it comes to running, you know, the fact that it feels good doing it right is important. And that's how you spot. I, I like to say you can spot a, a natural runner from 50 yards away because they have that weird look on their face called smiling. And ironically, or not ironically, actually, coincidentally, it's the same look that kids who haven't been put in shoes that squeeze their feet together. It's the same look they have when they're running. They're laughing. They're smiling. They, they have perfect form, by the way. They do it till they're done. Then they sit down and laugh and smile and play. And then they get up and do it again. And that's the way it should be for all of us. Yeah, I love that. I can just interrupt with a, with a point here. So do you guys ever watch the show Alone? Yeah. Okay. So in the show Alone, they drop these people off in the wilderness by themselves, and they have to outlast everybody else. So you don't know if you're out there for two months or six months or a year. It's until every other contestant drops out, which is kind of like these backyard races. It's, it's the hardest contest you can be against because you don't know where the finish line is. But what's interesting is in the most recent season, the two least likely people were the final two contestants. But what they had in common and different from anybody else was the sense of like moment, every moment was a happy moment. And again, I'm watching you, Steve. I'm just kind of marveling at this because I get so like knotted up when I have to argue with someone again about why art supports don't work and again, why the hookers are shit. But I'm watching you and you're constantly inventing new ways to have the same conversation where you're clearly amusing yourself, you know? Uh, and it's something I envy that like- Oh, Chris, don't get, don't get, don't get me wrong. Fight. 
Look, don't get me wrong. One of the things that motivates me is I'm allergic to intellectual dishonesty. And that's what is going on in this industry. And I get as riled up as the next guy. But my whole, all, I spend the majority of my time, way more of it than I would like, frankly, thinking of ways to talk about this stuff that make people just go, Oh, so um, I mean, just like quick aside, my best friend calls me 20 years ago and he says, and he opens the conversation by saying, you know what your biggest problem is? I went, Ooh, this will be good. He says, <laughs> you like telling people when they're intellectually dishonest, when they're in some cognitive bias, when they're factually inaccurate, when they're just wrong, because you like it when people do that to you, because it makes you go, Oh, that's a new idea. But I just, I'm here to tell you, uh, they think you're an asshole. <laughs> and, and I, and I said, Oh my God, you just put my whole life together and I never realized it. No, that's exactly what happens. You can see you just did it. <laughs> right. You enjoy it. You yeah. enjoy being called an asshole. I well, I enjoy I enjoy discovering that my thinking wasn't clear enough and I just found something underneath that's more essential and more true. And, and uh, that's, you know, cause that's really fun. Like when I'm working with people on psychological issues, um, which I used to do for a profession, actually, I used to say, okay, ready to have some fun. And that meant you're about to discover that everything you believed isn't true. <laughs> that cognitive dissonance is, is, is what, you know, we've been talking about, right? Yeah. And, and at the, the time when that most became apparent to me was working with a group of students up in the arctic circle or above the arctic circle we were sea kayaking the weather patterns were such that we'd swapped day for night right so we were sleeping during the day and kayaking at night because it was the middle of june it was like 24 hours of the day i had this moment that struck me so hard because one night it is midnight and i'm paddling due north and right up there is the sun and for every day until a few weeks earlier every single day of my life i'm there watching the sunrise in the east i watch it track through the south and i see it set in the west right and i know this is real this is a constant i can i can i can sort of you know it's like like being able to tell a time of a train coming through by looking at your watch you know that the trains are always on time, therefore they will be at this station at this time, right? Well, that's the goal, or where was the goal? But suddenly, I'm there left asking myself, well, if I was to have a stone in my hand and turn my hand over, would the stone drop? Does my mother love me? You know, these, <laughs> these constants that I see as being absolutely real are being attacked because something is not true it was the best education that i've ever done because everyone was in that state of cognitive dissonance and and i just think that you know what born to run as a book did was it created a level of cognitive dissonance that allowed people to start questioning now obviously there was a big smoke screen going on and not everyone was questioning hence chris's frustrations right but there was a lot of people who were questioning at that time is running naturally the thing that's missing in my life well i want to i want to jump in really quick with two two quick thoughts one is there's nothing that i find more confusing than i when i bump into someone and this happened in a doctor's office they had a copy of born to run on the table in the room i was in 
and the doctor and his assistant and whoever else came in and they were all talking about how much they loved the book while they were wearing the worst shoes you could ever have on your feet. It's like, I just don't get that. Um, and the, for people who don't know, the, the real definition of cognitive dissonance is that you're holding two beliefs that are contradictory and you can't hold them. Um, there's some contradictions you can, but these like one of them's got to go. And what's fascinating to me, um, and by fascinating, I, I typically do mean annoying, is that people like to hold on to beliefs regardless of whether they're true or not. And when you do get them in that state, I mean, the simplest one I say to people is this, do you think weaker is better than stronger? And they go, well, no. I go, well, if you're talking about your bicep, how do you make it stronger? They go, oh, do bicep curls. How do you make it weaker? Oh, put it in a cast. Okay, so if you put your foot in a shoe that doesn't let your foot move, what happens? And they go, oh, it gets weaker. And I said, great. Well, you just said that stronger is better than weaker. So why are you wearing that shoe? And some people will make that shift and other people will just hold on for dear life. Because literally, I think neurologically, we hold beliefs that about things that we can't physically see the same way we hold our sense of who we are. And you address someone's beliefs. Um, they sometimes feel like you're attacking them and their family and everyone who will ever be related to their family. It's because it, this is another evolutionary thing where we need to make decisions quickly and lock onto them. Because if we have to rethink every time we see the grass and the savanna moving weirdly about whether that's something that we're going to eat or something that's going to eat us, we're dead. So there's, I find this all, again, my wife has a great line just about our business. She goes, this would be so interesting if it wasn't happening to us. Right, right. I want to take it back a little bit to something you were talking about earlier and and I want to tie in with what I love about the way Eric coaches and you were talking about sprinters their feet hardly touching the ground as this explosion and and I can relate to that even as a non-sprinter from running on screes mm. and um you don't want your feet to be touching the ground long because those things are moving. You're, you are running on a moving surface. And, um, and I used to, when teaching the students, play a little game with them where I would balance flat rocks on the back of their hands. So they're focusing on where their hands were rather than focusing on just how exposed it was, just how loose and slippery it was, um, just how frightening a place it was. And I would get them to walk down those screes balancing the rocks and inevitably several things happened one their hands came up their butts went down so they were in a much more sort of they were in much better posture their back straightened up their feet came in underneath their bodies and this all happened automatically just from balancing rocks this is how eric operates i've seen it firsthand he he's not trying to explain something he explains something completely different we go and do it and suddenly we find that we are sort of running properly well no one really learns by being told what to do right we either rebel or we just as Chris will say, people will hear one thing 10 different ways. And so you've got to learn ways for people to feel what good is and sometimes feel what bad is so they can adjust. And, you know, what you just described is brilliant. And it's it's no different in any situation of learning to understand what good feels like. So they grasp that feeling and putting them in situations that continues to reinforce that so they don't have to think they just do and that i think is a huge distinction 
And so many runners out there continue to try to learn rather than continue to try to do. That's really great advice. Um, great coaching advice. I'm a fitness coach myself. And when I'm teaching, say, the kettlebell swing, you know, we go through practicing the movement and it should feel good. It should feel fluid. Uh, if it doesn't feel good, like you said, you shouldn't be doing it. So I think that's a great tip you dropped there, Eric. I, I, and I love that. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm thinking about, well, I think all of us are on this mission and, and I still want to uncover why for each of you a little bit more. But I think we're all on this mission to create this natural movement. But I think it's more than just walking and running. When we're talking about a natural movement, we are talking about a natural movement. We are talking about looking to nature to inform how we do things. Um, maybe avoiding some of the science, which seems to be obfuscating everything and telling us that things are okay when in fact they are not. And going back to what Coach Joe Vigil was talking about, which is sort of incorporating a little bit more love and compassion into the world to create that. I, I, I could be wrong. I could be completely striking out here, but I have a sneaking suspicion that all three of you, that is a lot of what you are about. And running just happens to be the medium that you explore. Anyone want to talk to that? Well, you know, let me say one thing. I think what really ignited the fire under me was that born to run experience because I was a pretty experienced journalist and had done a lot of like sort of fitness and adventure writing for magazines by that point. And when I started to report on the whole born to run experience, I came into it with an ex expectation that the conventional wisdom was correct. You know, that the Tato Mata were doing something that only they could do. It's okay for them because they're different, but the rest is we need these cushioned shoes. Uh, running is bad for you. Uh, at some point, your knees will give out. And that was my mindset going into it. And when bit by bit, those layers were peeled back and I realized you, you don't need the shoes. Oh, running form is important because you're constantly told just run the way you run. Don't mess with your natural movement. Just get the shoe to compensate. Um that the marathon is not the limit. All these things that I had taken as pillars of accuracy, one by one were being knocked down. And I was kind of left with that feeling of like, holy shit, well, what else are we being lied to? Or, or, or what else? Lied is probably um, not the exact right word because I don't believe the scientists are lying. But I do believe they allow their preconceptions to take them into experiments, which they then hurry to, to publicize for their own uh, credibility and, and their own uh, sort of publicity. And that's why, you know, you watch sort of the arguments about diets shift back and forth and back and forth. You know, fat is bad. No, fat is good. And, you know, don't eat eggs. Oh, eat eggs. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about, you know, but they rush to whatever an experiment seems to suggest. And for me, what I, I finally, what Born to Run did was it told me, you know, something, if something does not have a very long lineage, if it doesn't have roots, that you can trace back to like the 1400s, then it's probably bullshit. And that to me has kind of been a pretty good guideline in all of exercise science and sort of physical reaction. You know, if we see the same diet again and again and again through centuries, if we see people gravitating toward cold plunges and cold baths, if we see the same footwear going from 
you know, the ancient Greeks to the Roman centurions to the Tarumata, there's probably a reason why. And listen, the ancient Greeks could have done, they, they, they built the freaking Acropolis. They could have built a cushion shoe if they wanted to. They deliberately chose not to. The Romans are building, you know, viaducts. They could have put a pad in a shoe. They, they could have elevated a heel. They chose not to for a reason. And so I think the reason I get this kind of Sicilian fervor, you know, from my ancestry, which is that if you lie to me once, you're my enemy for life. And so I think that was, I felt so hoodwinked by the misconceptions, the marketing, and the fake confidence from the uh, medical research and the the wellness uh, area that's what fired me up was exploring these things and then wanting to share that word with other people uh, mine was uh not quite so um grand uh for me i just had my own personal experience i was when i got back into sprinting i was getting injured pretty much constantly for two years and a friend of mine uh, handed me a copy of Born to Run and suggested I try running barefoot to see if I learned anything. This friend was a world champion cross-country runner. Um, and saying world champion runner of any sort when I was living in Boulder, Colorado is akin to saying my neighbor because they're everywhere. <laughs> in fact, out of all the people that I've ever trained with, I'm the only one who doesn't have a world championship title. <laughs> so um, so I just was, you know, injury, injury, injury. And the first time I ran barefoot, um, I was, so, and again, I'm a sprinter. I'd never run more than a mile of my own volition and did not enjoy anything after the first 200 meters of that. And I was so enthralled by the experience. And I was so curious about what would happen if I experimented, if I changed my gait, if I ran faster, if I ran slower with the same cadence, the same steps per minute, if I ran with higher steps per minute running at the same speed or slower steps per minute running at the same speed, if I landed on this part of my foot or that part of my foot, we ran on every kind of surface you could think of. And at the end of this run, which I could have kept doing, I was with a handful of people and we decided to stop. And somebody had a GPS watch on and I said, how far was that? And she said, that was a little over 5K. I was like, what? Yeah. Um, I was dumbstruck. Now, here's the fun part. Um, I ended up with a blister on the ball of my left foot. And unlike many people who I've heard that's in that situation would say, see, this is bullshit. I got a blister. My thought was, <laughs> how come my right foot's okay? And on my second barefoot run a week later, when I still have a gaping hole in the left foot, I thought if I can find a way to run that doesn't hurt, I'm probably not doing the thing that caused the gaping hole. So let's just see if it works. I'll give it 10 minutes. If it doesn't work, you know, I'll wait and maybe try again. Maybe not. I don't know. Nine minutes and 30 seconds of agony later, it literally changed in one step. And what I was doing during that nine minutes and 30 seconds was paying attention to the good leg. Like, what's it doing? And eventually the, quote, bad leg figured it out. And literally that form change, I was overstriding and plantar flexing. I was overstriding and pointing my toes because sprinters land on their toes. But I was landing with my foot in front of my body. So I'm putting the brakes on and that's putting friction force into that ball of my foot, which caused the blister. So that, and, for, and more importantly, suddenly it felt great lighter, faster, easier. Um, I mean, it was just delightful. And luckily I'm someone who picks up new movement patterns pretty quickly. So that never went away. And I just wanted to have more of this. And um, I got tired of arguing with people about whether it was legal to get into restaurants and bare feet. It is, by the way, you can have a policy, but it's legal. Um, and uh, my wife got tired of you know me coming into the house with our white carpeting and my dirty ass feet. So I made some sandals and um, people kept asking for them. And then one day someone said, if you had a website for this sandal making hobby of yours, I'd put you in a book I'm writing. 
And I've been an internet marketer for a long time. So I rushed home, pitched this incredible opportunity to my wife who told me I was a complete idiot and I shouldn't do it. And I told her I wouldn't. And then she went to bed and I did. So, <laughs> so, so for me, it was just a, this weird kind of accidental thing. But what happened very, very quickly was two things. One, to Chris's point, I started researching more and more and more and finding out that I had been lied to, which I do not like. And I don't like when people make money by lying to other people. So I find that morally repugnant. And my wife has a great line. She goes, look, there's enough shoe companies in the world. I mean, the global footwear market of all types of footwear is over $500 billion. There's enough shoe companies in the world. You don't need another one unless your shoes change people's lives. And from day one, people were saying to us, I don't know what just happened, but wearing these little sandals that I just made from your do-it-yourself sandal kit changed my life, changed my family's life. My aches and pains and fill in the blank just went away. And I, I'm doing things I haven't ever done before or doing things I haven't done for years. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's that combination of wanting to pull the rug out from underneath an industry that has been deliberately lying to people and to help people have the experience that now we've helped over a million and a half people have of like, holy crap, this feels great and has changed my life. And to be clear about the science when it comes to running shoes in particular, I've always wanted to do this where I want to be on a panel discussion and I pull out a stack of papers like two feet high and say, this is all the research that's come out in the last 10, 12 years about how natural movement is good for you. Then I pull out another stack equally high. Here's all the research about how modern footwear is actually bad for you. And now let me pull out the stack showing how modern footwear is good for you. And then I just look around for a while. It's like, yeah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> hey, can I say something also about Zero Shoes too? Um, when, when Stephen talks about defying the odds that create this company, um, the, the reason we ended up connecting with Zero Shoes is because when we were running Born to Run 2, I thought, look, you know what? I, people are always asking me all the time, recommend shoes. What should I wear? What should I wear? I just stay out of that, that arena. You know, I'm, I'm not the shoe recommender. And I also felt for a very long time that I needed to maintain a certain journalistic distance. You know, I don't want anybody to say, ah, yeah, he's just saying that because, you know, Hoka's paying him for it. And so I just stayed out of it. But the question kept coming up. And then when Eric and I were working on Born to Run 2, we said, you know what? It's time to come out of the bushes and just say what we wear, what we personally like. Because we now, by this point, we had about 15 years of sampling minimalist footwear um, behind us. So we can actually speak from personal mileage experience. And then as we started writing up our recommendations, we realized you couldn't actually buy any of these things anymore. Like this, the shoes I was recommending were after products I was buying off of eBay. You know, things that I liked that shoe companies had experimented with and then dropped. You know, once the market or the popularity shifted a little bit, they just ran for the hills. And so that's when Eric said, dude, you really got to try Steve's shoes. You know, and I, again, I always stayed away from zero shoes because they made sandals. My friend Barefoot Ted made sandals. I didn't want to cause a rift. But once you guys went into closed, you know, shoes, I'm like, all right, this is a free game. First pair of zero shoes I put on um, kind of blew my recommendations off the page because everything I had liked about previous shoes that they were pretty close on Stephen had taken the next step. Like uh, the New Balance Minimus is pretty good, but the sole slippery and the toe box is kind of too narrow, you know? Zero shoes are beyond that. So I feel like this is a dude who A, stays in the fight, and B, actually evolves and, and perfects the shoes and makes them better and learns from his former rivals. 
Well, thank you very much. And just to be clear, we used to joke that in the, in the first two years, Chris was our unofficial marketing department because <laughs> as he's going around doing book signings for Born to Run, um, we'd suddenly see a spike in sales. And then I started doing something and I enlisted all of our customers in doing something. I would take business cards or bookmarks that were advertising zero shoes. I said, go to bookstores and just find every copy of Born to Run and shove one of those in a book. <laughs> so uh, we, were, we were piggybacking on what he was doing. <laughs> Which actually I'm kind of okay with because... <laughs> actually more than okay with it because I realized, well, actually someone explained this to me. There was a big hedge fund guy that brought me in to give a talk and uh, he's talking about Vibram Five Fingers and uh, he's like, you know, you, you got a lot to thank them for. I'm like, fucking thank them. Why are they thanking me? He's like, no, you don't understand it. You know, when you buy a box of cereal, if you're a kid, you don't care about the cereal. You want the toy in the box. And your book is the cereal. People are reading it. They got to think about it. The toy is the footwear. And that's yeah. why, you know, people got really excited about Viber. So if you're putting that little toy into the book, the read a book, hey, guess what? There's a shoe I can buy. That actually is a kind of cool little prize package that works for our benefit too. Well, happy. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so we've, we've talked about, zero shoes we've talked about them being featured in born to run too i should i guess use that as a a great opportunity to talk about the book um again a fantastic oh, yeah. book this is a collaboration between eric and and chris and it's the the book that everyone wanted after reading the original born to run it's the the how-to book, basically, and it's a, it's a really good training manual. And as they said, they do mention shoes by both um, Zero and uh, the other the other one was Ultra, with the with the sort of the two companies that that got mentioned, sort of in the book. Um, but mainly because both brands have wide toe boxes and uh, Zero Drop, and one is more flexible than the other. But the white, the, the ability for the foot to spread out and the uh, ability to not be sort of lifted, so you're teetering forwards all the time, um, would be sort of the other. Uh, and it was quite a while between Born to Run and Born to Run Two coming out. What? what why did it take so long and what was the what was the moment when you decided you couldn't hold off any longer well let me ask you a question eric um it was like we were holding off it's that the idea actually never occurred to me but eric let me ask you this if we had tried to write this book any earlier do you think we could have certainly um but you know, someone asked me the other day um, how much my coaching evolves. And that's the great thing about the coaching, you know, or how I look at coaching is everything builds on itself. We, we talk about how, you know, things evolve. Well, coaching evolves and learning new ways to, um, you know, help people to feel what good is, you know, continue to evolve for me. So I think, um, I think, yes, we could have done it, but it, I may have um, not have the creative resources that was a big part of Born to Run 2. 
that needed that that time if that makes sense um, i think you i think you also inadvertently uh your timing was really good accidentally uh, for people who haven't done this if you go to trends trends.google.com you can search for any keyword and google will show you how people have searched for that over the years in 2009 when born run became really popular that's when the search for barefoot shoes was at a peak um, until now so if you look in worldwide searches it's at a peak it's been at a peak for the last few months and it's been growing organically for the last like like year and a half two years um i will pat myself on the back and say i'm partly responsible for some of that from all the work that we've been doing but there's also just been this growing interest just naturally happening and so had you guys done this earlier you wouldn't be getting the reception you're getting now people weren't really ready and i think they're continuing to get ready and i think we're going to start seeing the book is going to have legs pun intended uh beyond you know what most books can possibly claim um, as a result of that and it is a bit of a virtuous cycle the more people who read the book the more they get into it the more people get into it the more they find the book i think the one person who really wasn't ready was me and so i, I think you're right Eric. <laughs> For real, I, I think I needed to get comfortable with the fact that this was actually working. Mm. And Eric, you had the knowledge, but I was your first customer in terms of putting it to the test. And so, you know, I, I was I was the the space monkey. I was the the chimp they put in the in the capsules. Hey, I wonder if this thing's going to come back alive. And I needed to have those ten or fifteen years to realize. Oh, wait a minute. I, I'm not just getting lucky. This this actually works, you know. And when I, when I started this experiment, I thought, okay, if I just, just do this born to run race successfully, I'm good, you know. I, I can now I can write a book, I can do whatever I want. But then year after year, it continued, and not only was I surpassing the age when I should have been on the decline, um, and the opposite was happening. I was feeling better. I was feeling stronger. I was feeling more skilled. Uh, running was, was feeling more and more pleasurable all the time. And I think I need to get to that point where I could say with confidence, anything I'm going to put in this book, I've researched it, I've questioned it, I've been the most skeptical about it, I've lived it, and now I'm ready to say, this holds water. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm capable of expressing it in terms which are both questioning and authoritative. So when we talk about the chapter on shoes, Eric, and I will say this, Eric knows more about footwear and running footwear than I do. That is a fat, flat out fact. But I can't help but argue with him. So in that chapter in the book, Eric says, All right, these are the two shoes we're going to recommend. And right under it, in parentheses, they're like, I completely disagree. You know, and I, I think we should be going with, you know, the other shoes, Mesa Trail and the Zell, and here's why, blah, 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 blah. I, I think we need to be at that point where we could um, relay to readers a good, healthy, intellectual give and take and put them in a position of saying you got to do your own work on this come into it with a questioning attitude because two people who've now devoted 15 years are still not willing to say we have re reached ultimate truth you know but we at least have knowledge we can share with you that's pretty damn close and i want to ask you i want to ask chris and eric a question though because Born to Run 2 is much more than just a training manual on running. How did you decide to expand beyond running into so many things? And you can describe you know, what all those topics are, because that's one of the things that makes this book really, really special. Well, I'll, I'll let Chris answer that, but I want to back up for a sec. And one thing that frustrated me with Chris 
after Born to Run. What, one thing? <laughs> just one thing, just one thing, <laughs> um, is that the people that I were hearing from that needed help were inspired by Chris. I wasn't hearing from people who were inspired by Scott and Barefoot Ted and Jen. That you know that was being done in different different environments. I was every person I heard was that hey Chris gave me hope. I'm just like Chris, and I know I can do it now because Chris did it. And to to take this 15 years, I what I'm so proud of from a coach and what Born to Run Two was is that Chris kind of owned that this was his journey and that he did inspire people. And I, I loved how he opened up chapter one of Born to Run 2. And there's no way he would have done that, you know, maybe even five years ago, is that he, he kind of started to see that he was just as much of an inspiration for people out there than everybody else in, in the book. Um, so it's yeah. interesting. It's, it's an interesting point too. I mean, I always thought of myself as being the least interesting guy in that book. And in earlier drafts, I'm, I'm pretty much invisible. And it was my editor who said, you got to put more of your own experience in there. I'm like, why? I got the world's greatest ultra runner. I got the Tarumata. I know I've got Harvard scientists. And they go, yeah, these are all people beyond the normal ex existence of your average reader. They need an entry point. You know, they need an avatar. And you are the everyman who's experiencing it. So it took a couple of drafts of the book before my own presence became a little bit more visible but but even in the aftermath i still felt like eh, i'm not the guy i'm the guy who writes about the guys and so i wanted their experiences to be foremost uh, and that's why it took me you know a while to get around but you know Stephen, you would ask why we decided to throw our arms around uh everything including um you know nutrition uh rest um uh, warm-up exercises uh, happiness, joy, family, things like that. And the real reason why was because it really dials back to that sort of evolutionary truth that just the way swimming affects everything about a fish and flying affects everything about uh, a bird, running affects everything about human existence. And we've we've lost a lot of that because we have think of ourselves as sedentary digital creatures. But biologically, we are still wired like cavemen you know we are still living in within the same machinery that our prehistoric ancestors had and whenever we neglect that just like when you put a panda in a cage what does a panda do it stops eating stops having sex and it gets mopey gets depressed you put a you know a panda back in the bamboo forest and suddenly it's like fucking and climbing like crazy uh but i'm not sure if you have any kind of bleep mechanism but you may <laughs> You may want to activate. And so that's why for Born to Run too, we want to address just simple things like the number one motivation that most people have for beginning to run is to address their diet. They're basically running as a response to their eating. And that is a very dangerous pattern to get into. It's why you run too fast, too far. You run when you're unhappy. You run when you're in pain because you're basically responding to what you ate the day before. And so we use this phrase, you know, your fork is not your coach. You need to dial in your eating first, and then that's out of the way. You know, then you can actually look at running form and joy and not feel like, well, if I'm not in pain, I'm not doing it right, you know, because especially what it is, you know, running becomes a punishment for pizza. And we want to take away 
that punitive aspect. So the very first chapter is about a very simple thing, a two-week test where you can teach your body how to respond and how to um, diagnose how it's responding to certain foods. We're not prescribing a diet. We're prescribing a diagnostic mechanism where when you eat some hummus, for instance, and you feel sluggish, now you'll know why. And it's a great two-week test. It's it's fantastic. That's what I love about it. It's so simple. Again, it comes from a guy named Phil Moffatone who's like, I, I don't want to argue with every dietitian in the world. I just want to teach you within two weeks. Now you can you're, assess your own eating. And if it feels good, then you should probably eat more of it. And if you feel sluggish or bloated uh, or, or depressed afterwards, you should probably eat less of that thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. The, the chapter that that really got me was the, the Fun Runs Amish style, which I, I think basically speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about, the fact that it should be fun, but it also speaks to what you've just been talking about, which people often push themselves too hard. And that whole, when we talk about the talk test yeah, an awful lot, and, and, and with regards to heart rate, I, you know, I, I was training something last year and, the, and heart rate was everything in that training absolutely everything because it was going to be a very long day um yeah we, we've got to start wrapping this up haven't we? but but I, I love the fact that you've just bought this sort of this whole sociable side um to what we're talking about and and why is being sociable so important I, that's going to be my final question with regards to all of this because i know all of you are sociable creatures maybe you're introvert in some ways however you see the importance of sociability why is it important last question <laughs> all right you guys left me an open i'm jumping in yeah anyway. go for it humans by dna are extraordinarily sociable and cooperative creatures. Uh, it, it, it dates back to our persistence hunter roots. If you two guys go out by yourselves to try to run an antelope into heat exhaustion, there's going to be three dead bodies on the savannah. You know, you're, you're never going to do it. But you think of large group together, old and young, men and women together, you are basically taking off all the boxes on that dream team that you need. You need experience. You need youthful enthusiasm. You need women who are most going to benefit from that caloric energy to, to nurse their young. You put the entire tribe together at a very easy conversational pace where you're all relying on each other's strengths. You're going to run that antelope into heat exhaustion and everybody wins. So I feel like for 2 million years, as runners, we've been practicing cooperation and collaboration and conversational pace. It's only recently, you know, because it's a financial incentive that races are glorified, where you show up in a corral and you blast off and you run as fast as you can, then you leave. But that's a very modern and, and bizarre concept that I believe is a marketing concept. You know, it's 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 a way to get a lot of people to do one thing and pay money for it. But when we were down the Copper Canyons, Eric, you know, we saw this all the time. If you saw a thought about a runner out running by himself, you look around and find out who's chasing him because it was so unnatural. Uh, the title of running groups, the idea of a race is a big communal pack affair with teams. And so I think that is why. And then we've all felt it ourselves. You know, you never came back from a run with your buddy and thought, well, that was a bad idea. You know, no, you're like, it was like the best moment of your day. And you're complaining about your kids and shit. And 
so to me, that's, that's something that we are naturally evolved to do. And we see confirmation of it in our daily lives all the time. And the unfortunate thing is too many of us buy into the marketing of like, just go hard, go fast, you know, PR and forget the actual natural aspect of it, which should be communal. Even for those of us who are not distance runners, there's that same thing. So every time, literally, whenever I go out with my training partners, at least one of us at the end of a training session will say, I'm so glad that you called me to make to remind me to come and do this because I might not have done it on my own. When I was a, when I was a kid, I was an all-American gymnast and I, I started working on a fitness book and the first chapter was get a buddy because you're not going to do it on your own. But I do want to be clear that I think the evolutionary thing you distance guys would, you know, would basically uh, do the persistence hunting thing and wear out the antelope. But my sprinting buddies, then we would show up and carry it over our shoulders and bring it home because we deadlift three times our body weight and you guys can't do a push up. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not even kidding though, Steven. That's exactly it. You want those yeah. fast 27 year olds actually in the back of the pack. So now when you're within range, now you deploy those guys, you right. know, everyone's oh, yeah. got a specialty. Yeah. Love it. Eric, you're up. Oh, I, I, I go back and forth on this because, and this is the hard part about having a podcast with, with Chris and um, Steven, because they're so interesting to listen to and he's just become part of the audience. But, um, you know, I, I, for me, I grew up in team sports and doing everything as a team. And I was a sprinter just like Steven and, and, Part of what drew me to endurance running was the draw of being by myself and what kind of maybe was an aha moment just now, just while I'm listening to this is that you, you mentioned introvert and I'm, I'm the classic introvert. Um, and maybe for myself through spending time with myself in the mountains running and getting to know myself, it allowed me to become a better, more engaging social creature in other environments. And I think to me, that's maybe what part of, we, we opened this with what running does for us. And may, maybe that's what it really has done for me is allow me to really enjoy speaking in front of a group and being in, in that social environment that maybe I was uncomfortable, you know, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. So we've, we've kind of obviously run over time. It was inevitable. You get <laughs> three incredible people in a room and it's going to happen. Um, my head's spinning at the moment. I hope everyone who's watching's head is spinning and they're starting to think about natural movement and what it means to them and what it could mean. And, and the, the metaphor it is for the rest of life. I, I, I really hope people's heads are moving around. But the, the metaphor that's been coming out quite a bit is, 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 is you guys have been asking the question at times, how do we get more people involved, right? And I think you've come up with your own answers. And I would really enjoy you, you watching what you've said and and basically coming back to me afterwards. And we can keep the comments open. We'll put emails in the in them if you want to but I, I i want you to think about that how do how do how do we create sort of more more traction with the natural movement and then how can people like us help you yeah because 
you know, we are 100% behind you on this. And um, I, I think there's so much to be said for encouraging more people to create movement in their life, for them to do it as simply as possible, for them to strip away the unnecessary and just go with the bare minimum. Um, this speaks to everything I do and everything I stand for. Um, so if, if we can support you in any way, I'm going to speak for Sean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then, then, then we will do it, you know? And, um, I, so that's, that's my challenge to you. That's my sort of throwing down the gauntlet. Um, all that's left is to say, thank you. Cause it has been fantastic chatting with the three of you. I, it, it, like I say, it's got my head spinning. And, and at a time when I've got to be thinking about other things, I know what's going to be filling my head right now. Um, <laughs> there's that whole ADHD thing, right? Where you, you can't slow it down. Um, but I, I, I want to thank you, not just for talking to us. I want to thank the three of you for what you have done over the last 15 years to bring this to the forefront of people's sort of consciousness to to actually really be a voice for encouraging people to talk about natural movement because it is something that that seems to have been sort of removed from most people's lexicon um over the last sort of several decades and I, and I love the fact that there is people in this court who are really sort of shouting loudly that it needs to be thought about so thank you not just for today but thank you for everything that you've done I appreciate you all thank you thank you it's a real pleasure yeah Likewise, guys. thanks very much great great talk our pleasure. Thank you for uh, being on the Engagement Podcast. I feel like I had an hour of being a fly on the wall with the most amount of wisdom being dropped ever. Uh, so I'm going to re-listen to this in the show notes and yeah. share that. Uh, but yeah, this is an absolute joy learning from you guys and getting to see how you operate and communicate. And um, yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here.